0: Welcome to Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets.
0: Joe, there was quite a bit of politics that happened in New York last week, right?
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool because in the primaries, usually by the time the vote comes around to New York, it's usually it's pretty settled who's going to be the winner. But in both the Democratic and Republican races, we have these very unusual races this year. And so suddenly, New York City... Uh, was the center of the world. You had politicians coming to pander, Ted Cruz going to a matzo factory, John Kasich eating uh, Italian food up in the Bronx. <laughs> Very unusual sights that you don't normally see in an election year.
0: So did you uh, vote in the primaries?
1: Um, no comment. No, I didn't. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't support anyone yet.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, the reason I ask is not to uh, gauge how uh, dedicated you are to the democratic process, but actually to try to make a point about markets and politics. And again, I know this is one of your favorite, favorite topics.
1: I absolutely love this topic. I mean, I think one of the biggest stories in the world right now is this process that we're seeing where parties that are deemed to be centrist of one way or another across Europe and the U.S. are seeing their support collapse, Mm -hmm. and we're seeing these more radical parties gain power. And so far, there hasn't been anything too dramatic. There's been no major default, or nobody has left the Eurozone. But as the center of gravity moves to the outside, I think that's going to have... profound implications on things.
0: Right, and there's a line of thinking, a strong line of thinking, that what's happened in markets over the past few years has a direct relation to the rise of fringe candidates or more extremist candidates, whatever you want to call them. And I'm very excited to talk about that today because we're going to have someone on who basically talks about the public mood and its connection with markets constantly.
1: Yeah, me too. This is going to be a great conversation. We're going to be talking with Peter Atwater of Financial Insights, who does all kinds of fascinating work looking at public polling, looking at when there's public euphoria, when the public is very depressed, what part of the public is depressed, and so forth, and what that means for financial markets, investors. And uh, there's a lot of interesting connections and interesting patterns throughout history to be gleaned.
0: All right. I'm excited. Let's do it.
1: Peter Atwater of Financial Insights, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Joe. Glad to be here.
1: So your work involves gauging the national mood, trying to figure out when people are in euphoria, when they're depressed, who's depressed, who's happy. How do you do that? How do you gauge the national mood?
2: So I look at some objective data, like Gallup's Daily Economic Confidence Index. That gives me a broad sense. But then I look specifically at extremes of wealth to see how are they doing so i'll look at the you know the uber financial elite mm-hmm. and you know when you see somebody like bill ackman flipping 90 million dollar condos that says something incredible about the euphoria of the financial elite at the same time things like you know the riots in ferguson or in baltimore are telling me a great deal about how the other end of the financial spectrum is doing
0: so it feels like when you're gauging confidence, it kind of by necessity still has to have some degree of subjectivity in it, right?
2: Yeah, I think the qualitative measures are often much more powerful than mm. the quantitative measures. Hmm. Uh, certainly, at extremes in mood, the the behaviors are just so over the top, either good or bad. Hmm. But the the qualitative displays of how we reflect confidence are. know, very often far easier to understand than just a whole pile of data.
1: So we're in this election season right now, and one of the big storylines is the fact that both on the Democratic and Republican sides, there are these more radical candidates than what we're used to doing quite well. Uh, We don't know if they'll win yet, but it's this phenomenon that everyone's talked about. And what does this tell you about the national move?
2: Well, what it tells me is that um, on the Republican side, it is very depressed. Um, You know, folks like Gallup measure it as being equivalent to how everybody felt back in, you know, the financial crisis. Hmm. Um, So there, the Republicans are feeling extreme anxiety and stress. And their needs reflect that in somebody like Trump. And we can come back to that. On the Democratic side, their mood is better. But it's not nearly as positive, I think, as the Democratic establishment certainly believed and should believe today.
0: Wait, Peter, you're saying on the Republican side, there's basically been no improvement in mood or confidence since the financial crisis. Why has that happened?
2: I think you know some of it is a function of you know the when you are not the incumbent or the you know in office party your mood naturally is lower than, you know, the other side. And that's, mm-hmm. you can go back and see that. But this distortion suggests that for the average Republican, jobs, lower gas prices, um, the things that you would normally associate with a economic and positive recovery are not translating at all into that segment.
1: It sounds like it fits. in mean, one of the uh, recent Nobel Prize winner in uh, economics Angus Deaton recently came out with research pointing out that for lower class whites there's been this huge surge in the mortality uh, there's been a surge I don't know if it's a huge surge but there's been a rise in the mortality rates despite the fact that generally mortality rates are trending down suicide alcoholism is rising and though the republican party it's a there you know there people think of the wealthy and the powerful but there is also this rural white base and it sounds like um that fits in very well with what you're saying
2: yeah and i and i think that those are expressions of mood that you clearly can see correlated to to confidence but i think for the republicans i mean it's not just a man session Mm -hmm. the 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 less educated uh certainly manufacturing uh Their behavior is very reflective of extreme weak confidence. And I think you're really seeing it manifest in this uh, very blatant xenophobia.
0: You know, you touched on it just then. Can someone explain to me how the Republican Party can simultaneously be the party of big business and, to a certain extent, a corporate elite and also represent the interests of uh, less educated, uh, not as wealthy white people? I've never understood that. Uh, I've been out of U.S. politics for the majority of my life, so I might just be missing something.
2: Well, I would say increasingly it can't. Hmm. And you're seeing the the very high-end Republican establishment uh, increasingly abdicate or vacate the party. I mm-hmm. mean, the Koch brothers have announced that they are pulling back from their uh, anticipated plans in Cleveland. And I think they're now quite fearful that the, the party has been usurped, uh, taken over by folks that are no longer familiar with them as Republicans. Uh, I think that for the longest time, you could have put what today is now a very bifurcated Republican Party under one umbrella that, you know, endorsed you know less government, hmm. uh, certainly more conservative social values. What you're seeing is, I think, a split between a traditional Republican Party and a much more authoritarian hmm. Republican Party, mm-hmm. and that in manifesting in Trump.
1: So this is the current political situation. What's a good historical and analog to where we are right now? I mean, when you look at you look at patterns over time of societal behavior. So, what's something that we can point to in the past that say, okay, this this is familiar.
2: Well, I think you can look clearly at the late 1960s. I think the the parallels to George Wallace are, you know, certainly appropriate and very Consistent with what we're seeing today, in in the form of Donald Trump, and I would expect that the the convention is going to look like something out of the 1960s. Uh, you can go back even further into the you know the era of the Great Depression to see similarly positioned authoritarian candidates coming to the fore.
0: You know, I'm conscious that we haven't mentioned the Democrats uh, that much just yet. You say the mood on the Democratic side is certainly better than the Republicans, but it's not that great either, which might be one reason we've seen Bernie Sanders do better than a lot of people initially expected.
2: It's not just that he's done better. It's that he's still considered to be viable. Hmm. I mean, if you were to look strictly at the objective data of superdelegates and and you know, popular vote, there would be no question that Hillary should be the candidate. Everyone from the media to their you know, pollsters to the population should be telling Bernie Sanders it's time to stop. And you're not seeing that at all. And that's, I think, a, a reflection of the vulnerability that that Hillary Clinton has to falling mood. And, you know, I, I was sharing this morning just how much mood has fallen Uh, in the last couple of weeks, and that's really to Sanders' benefit.
1: So let's talk about how this all all affects financial markets, because we sit here— Or
0: vice versa, right? (laughs) Right,
1: yeah, how it goes back and forth, because we sit here with the mood seemingly glum everywhere, gallops numbers of confidence not going in the right direction, yet at the same time the S&P 500 is very close to its all-time highs— a how can that be, and b does something have to give here? Can we predict that the national mood will go up if the economy keeps improving, or does your work tell you to be wary of the market here?
2: So how does a market go up and mood not uh, if you measure markets on nominal terms as you know the wealthy do, they certainly feel it in nominal terms. there's been no question that this is a state of euphoria and you look at Billionaire's Row on 57th Street, it, that's certainly reflecting what the markets are saying.
0: So this is the idea that the wealthy have been the ones who have benefited the most from the market rally over the past few years.
2: Yes, I think that that unknowingly, certainly not deliberately, the, the focus that the Fed put on asset values mm. has manifested in an extraordinary generation of wealth for the wealthy. Mm-hmm. They were in in 2009. They've stayed in you know gone all in and if you look at the average american they were not in and they are even less in today than they were mm. uh, some of the statistics on american investment in aggregate suggests that you know the the consumer having been burned in housing exited everything
1: mm. can this just be solved by full employment and rising wages or is there something deeper that it, the traditional economic statistics can't, or traditional economic measures can't uh, pick up?
2: Well, I think that if if it could have been fixed by employment, it would have been at this point. You know, the the figures on initial jobless claims, unemployment levels, would suggest that consumer confidence should be far higher than it is today. So that hasn't translated. I think wage inflation would have helped the consumer in this case, uh, particularly just in terms of making ends meet. Their their obligations, especially in healthcare, have gone up significantly during this recovery. Their wages have not kept track with that, similarly in, in things like higher education. So the cost of what they need has gone up substantially, mm. and their wages haven't gone up. You're seeing, I think, tension real tension manifesting between owners of capital and employees of capital.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that it's almost as if the American employee is a union member in, in trying to negotiate higher wages and is just today very unsuccessful in that.
0: Hmm. Okay, wait. I have the flip side of Joe's question. Uh what if you focused on something bad happening as a way to boost general confidence? So what if for instance we had a big bear market in financial assets and that took some of the air out of the financial elites tires? Would people feel better, uh, relatively speaking, or would that be bad overall?
2: No, I think they they shouldn't provide experience for the consumer, average consumer. I think they would be, um, I don't know that their confidence would be boosted, Mm. but their anger might subside. Might lessen. Might lessen. Uh, You know, and I think one of the consequences, Tracy, is that you won't see Congress stepping in to bail out the financial Mm. elite. Should things start to go down versus 2009, that the public outcry Mm. isn't isn't going to be there?
1: Mm. Um, You know, going back to uh, history lessons, what was the period? Have we ever seen the reverse where the mood was really starting to rise in the public and there were tangible signs of it, but financial markets hadn't caught up and say, oh, this is very bullish?
2: It's a great question. Um, I have to I hmm. I can't think of a time when that would have that correlation that association would What about have been just the case. a
1: general time of euphoria? What's that like? And uh, what caused that?
2: So, general time of euphoria looks like 1999 mm-hmm. where the entire spectrum of wealth from the low end to the high end is feeling enthusiastic. Uh you could say have said the same thing about 1966. Hmm. So, you know the the end of the Camelot era where you know again all of america feels united uh, there's a there's a common sense of what is normal and I and I think that's one of the, the telltale signs of extreme high confidence is there's a there is a clear black and white as to who we are, what we look
1: like, what we stand for. So unity as a nation is kind of is not the norm and is almost scary when we're too comfortable in who we all are. Yeah, we go from you
2: know from being all of one thing to being very scattered mm-hmm. and then reform.
0: All right. Peter Atwater, we could talk about this for hours, I think, but we're going to have to cut it short. Thank you, Peter.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. Fascinating Fascinating Thanks, crazy
0: stuff. You know, Joe, there is one historic method for gauging uh, the public mood when it comes to economics and markets. Do you know what it is?
1: Yes, I do. It's uh. <laughs> oh, is that, was that was I was supposed to say? It, should I? It's only because I it,
0: sent you the schedule for this.
1: Was it, that was supposed to be a setup to what you were going to say. <laughs> what is it, Tracy? What's the tried and true measure?
0: Thank you for playing along. Uh, that would be the misery index.
1: That's right. This is um. People have used this index for years, across decades, across countries, and it's super simple. All you do is you add the unemployment rate to the rate of inflation. And the higher it is, presumably the more miserable the country, and the lower it is, the happier. Um, so if you have 10% unemployment and 10% inflation, then your misery index is 20 and everyone's miserable.
0: That's exactly right. I'm impressed. Um, so It's but,
1: about as simple as it gets.
0: But there is a problem with the misery index now, because even though we have all these presidential candidates who are saying that Americans are more upset than ever, more angry than ever, the misery index doesn't actually show that. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to bring in Carl Riccadonna, who's Bloomberg's chief U.S. economist, and he is going to give us a rundown of uh, why the Misery Index doesn't say Americans are more miserable right now.
1: Uh, Carl Riccadonna, Chief uh, U.S. Economist of Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So, the Misery Index Is it something that you look at? Is it something that you feel is a useful gauge for the public – for how the economy is doing?
3: Well, it it – it's kind of an informal uh, economic indicator. So as we think about, let's say, monetary policy or uh, you know, growth forecasts or interest rate developments, it's a little crude for those purposes. However, uh, the misery index is a phenomenal uh, predictor of election outcomes in pr- presidential election years. And we can go all the way back uh, to 1964, uh, <laughs> and this index has an accuracy rate of for presidential elections. And one of the exceptions is the Carter uh, victory over Ford in 76, which was arguably a referendum on Watergate. Uh, so if we strip out that exception, then the success rate is actually 92%.
0: Well, Carl, tell us how the index used to be used in presidential elections, because people used to use it as like a campaign tool, basically, right? It right? was
3: definitely a campaign tool, uh, especially in uh, the 1980 uh, Reagan-Carter election, mm. when in his uh, closing remarks of the presidential debate, Ronald Reagan asked the audience uh, and, and voters to uh, ask themselves, are you better off now than four years ago? Hmm. And he specifically referred to employment conditions and inflation. So this was a hot topic uh, in, let's say, the 1960s and especially the 1970s, an era that was plagued by stagflation, i.e. rising unemployment or elevated unemployment and a uh, fairly high uh, inflation rate as well. So when those economic issues are pressing concerns, uh, voters tend to act based on uh, what's happening in their pocketbook.
0: Okay, but now if I look up the misery index, which is on the terminal, right, the Bloomberg terminal. it actually doesn't look that high, certainly relative to where it was in the 70s and 80s. And I guess that's probably a function of inflation, but does that mean that it's totally irrelevant in the current campaign?
3: Uh, It's not irrelevant because it uh, continues to uh, be a a good predictor of election outcomes. Uh, It's uh, called every election uh, with the the last exception being the 1992 uh, victory of Clinton over uh, George George, uh, H.W. Bush. Hmm. Uh, So it still matters if households are feeling better or worse about economic conditions, whether it was the high uh, inflation and high unemployment of the 70s uh, or even in the current environment where uh, uh, things are uh, at much more uh, desirable levels, uh, it still matters. If voters sense that the economy is moving in the right direction, then they tend to reward the incumbent party. Mm. If they sense that the economy is uh, falling apart, uh, then they tend to uh, quote unquote vote the bums out. And a great (laughs) example of this was uh, Obama. Obama's victory uh, in 2008. The stock market was crumbling, unemployment was backing up, and uh, you know the economy was in uh, in a bad situation. And voters opted for change.
1: All right, I have a few problems with this whole thing. Just so, a few. Just a few. So. The Fed would like to see inflation higher. So then, does Janet Yellen want to see the U.S. economy more miserable?
3: <laughs> uh, well, she wants uh, inflation to be only slightly higher. So the the risk here. But there has been a lot
1: of handwringing in in recent years about too low inflation constantly.
3: Absolutely. And, you, you, you can't keep winning and going in lower and lower and lower uh, inflation because then you end up in uh, deflation uh, and there's a whole other set of problems that uh, arise uh, because of that. And uh, we can look no further than Japan uh, to see uh, some of those uh, consequences. So Janet Yellen doesn't want us to be uh, much more miserable, but she would like a little bit more inflation uh, because actually that won't make us miserable. That helps uh, to pay off your mortgage mm. uh, or your car loan uh, by inflating that debt away. If prices are falling, uh, then there's very little, ins- and a, a, it's harder for you to pay off those outstanding debts, uh, but also you're happy keeping your money in the mattress instead of putting it into riskier investments, which are the basically the lifeblood okay. of the economy.
1: All right. And so here's my other issue. So you mentioned the Carter Ford and the Reagan era election. That was a period characterized by stagflation, where we had very weak growth, high unemployment and inflation. But economists and I don't um like to talk about this thing called the Phillips curve which insinuates that there's this that inflation and unemployment are kind of these opposite forces, and that tip and that right. There's a strong
3: negative correlation, and,
1: and yeah, so that there's this negative correlation. Yes. And so I'm wondering, did the misery index really just sort of make sense as a thing during the stagflation era where we got both at the same time, but that. Every time else, it's just not a very meaningful thing. Right. If there's going to be this Phillips curve framework where they move in the opposite direction, right?
0: Maybe well, we it, need a misery index adjusted for the new normal, right?
3: I I don't think we do because uh, it worked in the stagflationary period because people were really miserable, uh, but it also works in periods where there was not great uh, uh, stagflation. For instance, Reagan's uh, re-election in 1984. Mm. Uh, the uh, 88 election uh, the, the, the early 2000s so uh, it, it certainly was a hot button issue uh, in the late 60s and the 70s uh, but it's also worked in other periods so it's not just the outright level of misery uh, it's really the change the direction uh, that matters of so if you have really bad economic conditions and they get a little better you're still arguably pretty miserable uh, but things are heading in the right direction well, if and I look, voters reward the incumbent party
1: I'm looking on the terminal right now and, and the. The misery Index has ticked up just a little bit. It's still very low by historical standards right now. So, you know, that might be something to worry about. If just
3: ever so <laughs> yeah, slightly. It's very minor. And what's important here uh, is we have to look at moving averages. So for my analysis, I look at a six-month moving average because what's happening in the latest economic developments sometimes takes a while right. uh, to actually be processed by Main Street. Uh, and so if we look at the broader moving averages, then we tend to eliminate some of that noise and and uh, sure. you know, so no, that, that the, the, the wiggle room. It's very uh, and the important thing here, as we look at the outlook, so where we are now versus where we'll likely be on November eighth, election day. Uh, the unemployment rate. Let's look at that first. We're at five percent now. Uh, the unemployment rate has been steadily grinding lower for the last five to six years, at a pace of about one percent per year. So. It's been moving sideways a little bit lately, but the Fed and most private sector forecasters are looking for it to move lower by about 30 basis points. That puts it at uh, 4.7% by year end. Uh, And private sector forecasters and the Fed uh, expect core inflation to be about. 30 basis points higher. So if those forecasts pan out, you basically have an unchanged misery index over the next six months or so. However, uh, the index has been in a broader downtrend since the end of the financial crisis, so it does tell you yeah. households are, are less miserable. So
0: not... not Not so much misery, but not entirely happy either. Uh, Carl Riccadonna, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.
1: And I just want to say, I'm on the terminal. The misery index is not just in the U S. And I'm looking at the Brazil misery index right now, and it's far and away near its highest levels ever. And they're right near in the in the middle of political upheaval drama. So it doesn't it doesn't just work in the U S. It also works internationally. Carl Riccadonna, thank you very much for joining us. Well, Tracy, I really enjoyed our conversation about various (laughs) ways of measuring societal mood and how happy and miserable people are. What did you, uh, what's your big takeaway from it?
0: I mean, I thought it was a really good rundown of what people have been talking about already. One thing that I would like to explore a bit more is this idea of the world getting slightly topsy-turvy in the sense that, for instance, Janet Yellen could want the misery index to be more miserable because she wants inflation, or the idea that the general population could actually want... A decline in financial asset mm. prices, just on the basis of pure Schadenfreude, and the idea that they would like to see the financial elites take a bit of a tumble.
1: Something that I think about is, you know, we have all these measures to gauge the economy, the unemployment rate. There's a million. There's thousands of different measures, mm-hmm. but ultimately, what we want is for people to be happy. I mean, ultimately, growth, low unemployment, stable prices they don't they're not ends in themselves the goal is that you want a happy People want to be happy. And so it feels like our tools for really understanding how well we're succeeding of that are okay. flawed at best.
0: But I think what we're getting to is a fundamental question of economics and philosophy, international relations, everything pretty much. Are people happy on the basis of absolute gains or on relative gains? Like if everyone's doing well, yeah. absolutely. But one group of people is doing much better relatively. Will the the population be happy? I don't know.
1: Do you think we could solve that in like the 10 seconds we have right now or should we wrap it up no all right let's wrap it up thank you for listening to odd lots i'm joseph weisenthal you can follow me on twitter at the stalwart
0: and i'm tracy alloway i'm on twitter at tracy alloway thanks for listening